Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, the last of three special editions of Little Atoms from Mind's Eye, an audio installation at Brighton Digital Festival, featuring lots of people from space. The interviews you're about to hear were recorded for an audio installation, Mind's Eye, which is happening at Circus Street Market for the Brighton Digital Festival from the 13th to the 28th of September 2014. This ambitious outdoor audio piece brings art and science together and offers the audience an opportunity to explore and understand the solar system via the voices of those most familiar with it. Thanks to Andy Franskoviak and Mary Jane Edwards of Shrinking Space for asking me to take part and to Lorraine Conroy of ESA for arranging most of the interviews. Coming up are interviews with former space shuttle astronaut Gerhard Thieler, Dr Helen Mason of the University of Cambridge on the Sun, and Professor Carl Murray of the Cassini Imaging Team. Hello, my name is Gerhard Thiele, and I am working in ESA's Directorate for Human Spaceflight and Operations, specifically on strategic planning and outreach activities. How did you get involved in, in space, in astrophysics first? What first sparked your interest in it? My first interest in space and everything related to space actually dates back to the times of Gemini 3 in 1965. At that time, I was a 12-year-old boy, and one of the very first TV shows I can remember was the launch of Gemini 3 with Gus Grissom and John Young. And as every young girl or young boy who sees something like that, I said, I want to become an astronaut. And that's actually what started my relationship with space, which luckily has lasted until today. We're going to talk about your journey into space, but let's talk about some of the things you worked on before you get to astronaut training. When I realized that becoming an astronaut as a European is not so easy, as a matter of fact, when I grew up, there were only either Soviets from the then Soviet Union or American astronauts from the United States, I switched my dream at least to deal with the universe at large. And I studied physics and more specifically astrophysics. And uh, that is what, of course, was also extremely exciting. And still today, it's one of the chapters that fascinates uh, me at most. How did everything 
come into being as we see it today. But luckily, and uh, life takes turns uh, and doors open when you least expect it, there was the opportunity to apply as an astronaut for the then German astronaut program. And it was no question that I would apply. And even more luckily than in the end, I succeeded in the selection process. Would this have been the... Um the Space Lab mission. So I wanted to talk to you about what that mission was, and then we can talk about what your role was on that mission. My first step as an astronaut with the German space agency DLR, Deutsche Gesellschaft für Luft- und Raumfahrt, or German Aerospace Research Establishment, back in 1987, Germany focused on science in space, and especially on science under so-called microgravity conditions because in space we are weightless. Gravity does not have an effect on things that's happening on board the space lab back then and today the space station. And this very unique environment was, of course, for someone who is extremely curious about how our world is functioning and what is happening, a really perfect example and to go there and witness that yourself and be part of a big team of a big machine also to see what can be learned from going there. Your role on that mission was a payload specialist. What does that mean? When I first became an astronaut, there were still different concepts of the astronaut profession than what we have today. And at that time, you had the so-called professional astronauts, which were either pilots or so-called mission specialists who have a very dedicated astronaut training and they would do spacewalks, for instance, capture satellites, bring them into the then shuttle cargo bay, repair them and uh, deliver them to space again, just to give you one example. Payload specialists were astronauts who did not have a full astronaut qualification, but they came rather from a scientific point of view. They were scientists. Uh, mostly as a background. I am a physicist, for instance, and they were dedicated to just doing the work uh, related to the research, to the dedicated payload. They didn't have to do that much with flying the shuttle or uh, making sure that the shuttle systems are uh, working properly to support the actual task of the mission, which was, in that sense, scientific research. You said that's how it used to be. So how have things changed then in terms of the roles of astronauts? Things have changed in the sense that today the concept of a payload specialist has been given up. And that is simply due to the fact that space research has not become something that is a specialty amongst the many missions that are flown today, but it is key to what is happening on ISS uh, in the first place. And so the astronauts that are being selected today are being selected with having that in mind. And so there is more frequently a scientific background and uh, people know that going to space means today on board the ISS uh, performing as a large portion of the daily work scientific research. Now on that Space Lab mission, you were a backup crew member. So what does that mean? What did you end up doing? When I was first nominated to a mission, it was the German Space Lab mission D2, I served as a backup. Why a backup? The prime crew members had, together with the backups, by the way, had a very dedicated 
training for a very extended period of time, three years and more, which is much more than astronauts normally train for their mission. And so it would have been very risky if one of the primes would get ill. For this reason, for specifically this position, there was always a double or a backup trained. And I was one of them for the very first flight. And almost everything until roughly four to six weeks before the flight, you do just uh, as the primes. However, then the primes do the more specific things like emergency landings. That's where you don't get an exposure asset backup. And you actually then work more often in the control center because you will be one of the prime interfaces with the crew who will perform the actual work in space who will discharge the experiments in the space lab. And of course, they don't do that alone without any help or supervision from the ground. They are in constant contact with the mission control center and there one of the prime interfaces would be the backup for one very simple reason. They have gone through the entire training. They know the mission inside out just as the primes do and we speak the same language. Describe a little what that training involved. You say the training for that mission, your astronaut training for that mission took years. So tell me something about what the training involved. The training for a space lab mission and for a scientific related mission, therefore, is of course uh, heavily related to the science uh, to begin with. So, for instance, I am a physicist by training, but would I have flown at that time, I would not have uh, performed only those experiments from the material or physical sciences. I would have performed medical experiments, biological experiments, just like anybody else. And that means, of course, that you have to get educated in these fields to understand what these experiments that you were supposed to do are all about. And so actually that part of the astronaut training, although I as a scientist enjoyed very much, has nothing to do or only very little with what people think when they hear about astronaut training. They think about parabolic flights where you float uh, in weightlessness or they think about centrifuges or training in huge water basins where you simulate weightlessness. But that was not part of the training back then. But was there any aspect of training to, I mean, how do you replicate on Earth how those experiments are going to work in space? Well, that is, uh, there are two things uh, to be considered. Of course, on Earth, you cannot simulate the specific conditions in space because uh, if that would be the case, you would do it and would not go into space in the first place. The only thing that you can do is for a very limited amount of time, for instance, on an aircraft that flies a special path in the sky, which we call a parabola. It's essentially the same thing that a stone that you throw. It also follows a parabola. During that phase of flight, you are weightless and it lasts typically around 20 to a maximum of 25 seconds. And certain procedures, not so much the science, but how do you inject a fluid with a syringe into a special container, for instance? How do you make sure that the bubble that you are creating indeed is then not folding around the syringe, around the needle, but really stays inside the container? And these kinds of things you can practice in such a short amount of time. But the experiments themselves, of course, you cannot discharge on crowns. You can pretend, you can act in the very same way, but if you switch the on button, for instance, the 
sample that is now being processed is of course not subject to weightlessness but subject to 1G and therefore there you have your limitations but the operational part of it what is it that I have to do uh, that you can learn very well here on ground. Space nevertheless has its surprises and that is where the interesting part starts. So what did that D2 Space Lab mission do? What was what were the aims of the mission and what what sort of things did it achieve? Well, the Space Lab D2 mission had more than 80 experiments uh, from a broad range of sciences, and it covered medical and biological science, which we call life science in general, because both deal with the question, how does life react to uh, microgravity. And on the other side, the big fields were physical sciences. So that is essentially the melting and solidification of materials to better understand the process and the physical properties of the materials involved. And a third field is technology demonstrations or experiments. We had a robot on board which was commanded by the ground doing as difficult things as capturing free-floating particles, which is a challenge by itself if you consider the time delay when you as the operator give the command to grab something. It takes five seconds until the command is actually executed and so you need to be sure that the piece that you want to grab is exactly at that position. So we had a whole variety of experiments from various different fields, and some of these have entered uh, textbooks in the material science. We learned better how the solidification process works in uh, life sciences and in biology world. We have detected uh, ways how the human body works that we had not anticipated and of course all these studies are continued today on the International Space Station where we have more or less permanent capability to do this research. On the Space Lab mission is, ends after 10 days and everything that you have not done within 10 days is essentially finished and you have to wait for another option years later to potentially fly on the space station. Fortunately, situation is different. I'm Ben Ferguson and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Let's move on to the NASA. So 1996, you embark on space shuttle training at NASA. So how did that how did that happen? How did you get involved with NASA? Well, at that time, it, it was uh, in the middle of the 90s. Uh, NASA opened up to the idea that the concept of a payload specialist, the person that who is dedicated just to scientific research but nothing else, then that might, in view of what is coming up, no longer be the perfect concept. And however, the international partners, whether they came from France, from Italy, or from Germany, they so far had only astronauts who were in NASA terms, so-called payload specialists. And so there was the opportunity to go to NASA and train as a so-called mission specialist. And that was, from the NASA perspective, a full-fledged astronaut training. And you would be indistinguishable from any American who has undergone astronaut training. So let's talk about the training. So it's 1996, you go for the training. The mission that you go on is in February 2000. So again, let's talk about what space shuttle training involved that perhaps differed from the, the training you'd done earlier. 
I mentioned earlier that for the the first type of astronaut training as a payload specialist, I had to learn the various parts of sciences that are being performed on board the ISS. And as a physicist, I had to learn medicine and biology and all the other things that I knew little about. Now, that was at NASA a totally different environment all of a sudden because there I had to familiarize myself and learn essentially the basics of spaceflight and how does the space shuttle actually work. So we got a much more fundamental education on things like orbital mechanics, how do you get from one orbit to another, uh, how does a rocket work, and not only as a principle but in more detail, and then very specifically, what are the capabilities of the shuttle and how can you use those to accomplish various mission objectives. But this was very general and there were no specific mission related training aspects in that phase of the training. And after 21 months, you are then qualified to become assigned to a mission or assignment eligible, as it has been called. So can you describe the mission, the S2S-99 shuttle radar topography mission? Tell us what the mission is and what it was for. The mission I was able to fly on, and or I should rather say the mission I was fortunate enough to be nominated for the shuttle radar topography mission had but one goal, and that was to measure the height profile of the majority of the Earth. And that is, so to speak, to generate a three-dimensional image of Earth's surface, to be precise, of the landmass of Earth's surface for an ocean, you would use a different uh, mission concept. And uh, in order to do that, uh, we launched a so-called radar interferometer that is nothing else than a radar system that sends a radar beam to the surface of the Earth where it is being scattered, and uh, the scattered radar signal is being detected by actually two radar antennas, one in the cargo bay of the shuttle, the second one on a mast that extended 60 meters outside the cargo bay. And this distance of the two, I would call them radar eyes of 60 meters, allows, so to speak, a stereoscopic view of the Earth's surface. And from that, with some complicated mathematical algorithms, it is indeed possible to measure how the Earth's surface looks like uh, with a much higher precision than we were ever able to do before. Talk me through the practicalities, the basics of getting from the Earth to space in the space shuttle, the mission, the blast-off and the journey out of the Earth's atmosphere. A launch on a space shuttle is obviously a very exciting and specific moment and the it is very difficult to describe in, in normal words. They just don't do justice to the experience. You have heard it from uh, many others who have done it before, that there is a, a huge force pressing you in the seat and uh, all kinds of information, but nothing really replaces and prepares you for what you are going through. It's not that it is physically so absolutely demanding. As a matter of fact, I would dare say that most of the people on our planet could endure that easily. Or I, maybe I should not say easily, but with um, 
minor adjustments. But nevertheless, it is quite interesting to go through these eight minutes and 36 seconds. That's how long it took us to get from Earth service into space, into orbit. And the impressions are simply overwhelming. Initially, it is that the rocket really rockets. I mean, this is not a smooth flight, and sometimes it was difficult to read the displays because the numbers seem to jump in front of your eyes. And all of a sudden, after two minutes, when the solid rocket motors uh, have burned out and are jettisoned, uh, it becomes very quiet. But then this imaginative fist comes and presses you even more into your seat as you become faster and faster and the shuttle becomes lighter and lighter and the less mass the shuttle has the more the acceleration of course grows and you're quite happy if that fist goes away from your chest after uh, eight and a half minutes do you have anything to do at that time or are you just a passenger sort of at the mercy of the rocket and in fact do any of the crew have anything to do at that point During launch, I was lucky enough to sit on the flight deck and the four people on the flight deck would, during a nominal ascent, just monitor. But of course, we are being trained to interact with the shuttle should there be a need to do so. And uh, so fortunately for us, we were observing passengers, so to speak, because everything went uh, perfect. It was a picture-perfect launch, if you wish. But of course, you are on your toes all the time, ready to be involved uh, should that be necessary for any kind of minor or, God forbid, major malfunction that may happen. Is there an obvious moment, can you recall the moment, where you left the bounds of the Earth? It is actually not that easy to say when you have arrived in space. Of course, when the main engines cut off, which are switched off all of a sudden, the acceleration force disappears and you should float. Now, you don't. Why? Because you are strapped in very tightly in your seat. And even at that moment, I did not realize that I have arrived to space. But uh, one of the first tasks I had to do was to take pictures of the great or the big external tank that is at launch filled with liquid nitrogen and oxygen which feed the shuttle's main engines to bring us up there and once it's empty so we are jettisoning the tank and the shuttle rotates so that we have it in clear view so we were supposed to take uh, pictures and that was my specific uh, task and in order to do that I had to remove my helmet and first thing I did what I did in training I just tried to play it very carefully it's usual place at a hook at the pilot seat but uh, Janet who was next to me said Gerhard just let it go and very carefully I removed my hands from the helmet and I knew that it would happen but it is very difficult to believe that it indeed happens it just stayed where it was it didn't fall down so I realized we are in space you would have as you said done the the there's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary.